Skill three, persistence. I've heard a lot of people say things like, "A goal is a dream with a deadline," or "You've got to give yourself a timeline." I struggle with that idea because none of the success I've experienced in my personal life has been quick. If I had given myself a timeline of a year or even two, I would have given up a long time ago. It took me two years to grow enough of a social media following that a literary agent would take me seriously enough to consider my book proposal. It took another six months after that to submit the proposal to publishing houses to see if an editor would take a chance on a cookbook deal. It was eighteen more months before that book hit the market. So much work was necessary just to get to that place. I posted a couple of pictures on Instagram recently. The first picture was from my very first TV segment for the local morning news. I had pitched for months and finally gotten booked for a segment on National Junk Food Day, wherein the KTLA Morning News team and I tried out the weirdest junk food on the market at that point. Think deep fried Oreos and pickles brined in cherry Kool Aid. Peabody material, it was not. The second picture I shared was from my very first time on the Today Show. In it, I'm filling in a Hoda and Kathy Lee sandwich, and I'm smiling so big and brightly that my face is about to crack in half. I was ecstatic that day because I had always, always wanted to be booked for a segment on the Today Show. What I need to point out, besides the fact that my hair looked so much better after I started going to a real colorist instead of using dye from a box, is that the first picture is from 2010. And the second photo is from 2018. Eight years, you guys. It took me eight years to achieve that goal, and the road was long and hard. It started with that first junk food segment, and after that, I begged, borrowed, and stole to land more opportunities. I would snag a Fourth of July barbecue segment here or a Thanksgiving Day segment there. At the time, I was flying solo at work, which meant that every single time I convinced someone to have me on their show, I had to find a way to make it work with no money and no help. I could only buy props that I could easily hide the price tag for, so I could return them after the show. I would buy, haul, design, set, straighten, and clean up all by myself. I changed from setup clothes to on-air clothes in gross bathroom stalls or in the backseat of my car. Local news shows don't tend to have the nicest accommodations. Usually, by that point, I would have sweat off all my makeup and my hair would be a frizzy mess. I wasn't cute, but my table was, and I was always prepared to give the funniest, most informative segments they'd ever seen on everything from St. Patrick's to Arbor Day. Going after that kind of press all by myself sucked, but I didn't have the money for a publicist or a designer or even an assistant to help me set it up. What I did know was my goal, and I understood that hard work was the only leverage I had. When I got my first chance to do a national show, I jumped at it, even though it was on a topic I didn't know. And had to research long and hard just to be able to talk about it intelligently for six minutes. For years, I built relationships with TV producers. I pitched hundreds of segments that got rejected for every one that got accepted. I became known as a pinch hitter. I was the person who would jump on a plane last minute and cover if someone else got sick. If you needed an expert to show up and talk about literally anything, I was your girl. I worked my butt off, and it still took eight years. It took me six books and five years to finally get a bestseller. It took me eight years to get on the Today Show. It took me four years and thousands of photos on Instagram to get to one hundred thousand followers. I could keep listing things out for you one after another of how long it has all taken to get from there to here, but the point is this. It never went as fast as I wanted it to, and if I had given up because I hadn't achieved my goals by a certain date, I wouldn't have achieved any of the things you know me for today. For all my dreamers, 
for all my hustlers, for all my girls listening to this who are building and planning, don't you dare compare your beginning with someone else's middle. Don't you dare listen when someone tells you that you need to have an end date. Your mile markers, remember, those are the things you can control. Those should have dates attached so that you're being productive and efficient. But your guideposts, those are more nebulous and harder to achieve. And you may have to come at them six ways before you find something that will help you break through. It's easy to see someone else's success and be discouraged by it because we assume that our first attempts won't measure up. Of course they won't. None of my success has been a meteoric rise. What you see now is over a decade of hard work and focus and standing back up every time I got knocked down. You don't have connections or money or access. I didn't either. I had work ethic and a dream and the patience and perseverance to see it through. It's going to be a journey and you're going to have to fight to get where you want to go. But it's also going to be worth it. One of my favorite signs I ever saw during a half marathon was a poster that read, If it was easy, everyone would do it. I love the reminder that achieving a goal is hard, but I'm still here. So are you. The reason that we're willing to stay on the road, to keep pushing to get to the next level, is that we're not like everyone else. It's not easy to achieve a goal, it's tough. But girl, so are you. The reason people give up or fall off or aren't willing to keep moving forward is because they believe this goal that they're chasing is temporary. This is something that we have been sold by media for most of our lives. Try this. Now try that. Now do this diet. Now try this exercise. Now do this thing. Now keep switching. Now keep changing. This type of behavior isn't effective in the pursuit of an achievement. This type of behavior is only effective as a means of confusion. Because here's the deal. If brands and media and the news can confuse you, they can sell you more stuff. Think about it. 50 years ago, the only way to lose weight was simple. Burn off more calories than you consume. It's a simple solution that works. Is it easy? No way. The waffle fries at Chick-fil-A are delicious and way more fun to eat than broccoli. But the diet industry wouldn't exist if the answer was simple and straightforward. So instead, we've been bombarded with a million different answers, all of which are confusing. Should you go paleo or Whole30 or Adkins or South Beach or vegan or gluten-free? Each season, there is something new and different to try, and every single one of them is attached to something you can buy. Books, powders, frozen meals, plans, programs, pills, etc., all to answer the confusion you feel about diet and weight loss. This is only one industry, you guys. This attitude of flitting from one possible solution to another like a drunk butterfly shows up in every single kind of consumer good. Is it any wonder that you're trying to achieve your answer, your goal, by trying something for a little while, then giving up when it doesn't work, and trying something else? Is it any wonder you're not making the headway you want to make? No. You believe this goal in your life is temporary. You believe it's something to be pulled on and off like your favorite hoodie. There when you want it, and tucked away in the closet when you don't. This goal... This mission of yours, this dream, this place that you're headed, this is not a temporary thing. This is not something that you're going to do for this month or this season or just this year. Really, truly chasing down a goal changes not just that specific aspect of your life, but how you approach life on the whole, forever. If you're saving money to buy a house, that will require a total change in the way you spend and save. If you want to have a strong, outstanding marriage, that means rooting out any misconceptions you have about relationships and intentionally pursuing it every day. No matter what it is you're chasing down, you'll only catch it if you go all in. This is not just a thing you do. This is who you are now, forever and ever, amen. 
This is not training just for this month or a season. Think about it. Every professional athlete, every Olympian, Tom Brady or Serena Williams or Messi, they're training just as hard today as they were when they started. In fact, I'd argue that to operate at the level of excellence they're at today, they're training harder than ever before. The training never stops. Because after you achieve this goal, you're going to choose the next and the next and the one after that. You pursuing the best version of you, whatever this looks like, will permeate every area of your life. So stop thinking small. Stop thinking about this with such a limited perspective. Assuming what you're doing is only about what's in front of you now. Dig in. Work hard. Be patient. The time will pass by no matter what. You may as well spend it in pursuit of something more, no matter how long it takes you to get there. Skill 4. Effectiveness. When I'm on deadline for a book, like right now, I spend huge chunks of my typical workday away from my team so I can work without being disturbed. On this particular day, I'm sitting at one of those long communal wooden tables that seem to be required furniture in any respectable hipster eatery. I like sitting at the communal table because I can always find someone to watch my stuff while I go to the bathroom for the 87th time this hour. The only drawback is the constant stream of people who come and go from the chairs around me, making the energy shift and change with each new addition. The first girl who sat down today was here to work on homework. I know this because her textbook was open and she had a worksheet in front of her. She tackled it like this. She read a little bit from the book, then she looked at her Instagram for a while, then she took a picture of her coffee and her homework and posted it on Instagram. It took her another half hour to find just the right filter on Visco. After that, she focused in on the work again. She was doodling in the margin a second later. Then it was more scrolling and some Googling, and a while later, she packed up to go. Not one single thing filled out on the worksheet she came to do. The next person who sat down beside me was a bro. He was here with another bro. I actually like these kinds of dudes a lot. They're in their late 20s, full of energy and enthusiasm, and they quote Gary Vee like it's gospel. I get it. I'm in. Gary Vaynerchuk is my preacher, too. In a nerdy sort of way, I was happy they were beside me. They had fancy laptops and yellow notepads, and they were brainstorming and ready to begin their work. After their initial chat, they proceeded to spend two hours, I swear, on my unsweetened chai tea, scrolling Instagram as well. The irony that was fully lost on them was that they were scrolling their favorite entrepreneurial feeds, showing each other quotes about perseverance and hustle, all the while oblivious to the time they were wasting. I always feel so bad when I observe this happening to the dreamers around me. It's too easy to fall into time wasters and busy work that get you nowhere closer to your goal. I used to do this all the time when I was a young author. Back then, I had a really bad habit of rereading what I had written over and over and over. I would sit down to write for an hour and spend 45 minutes reading what I had already written and inevitably editing it as I went along. For months, I couldn't figure out why I wasn't making any real tangible progress toward getting to my final word count. I wasn't getting anywhere because I wasn't actually doing any new work. I was just like the bros sitting next to me at the coffee shop. My guess is that they'll have all sorts of collab sessions like the one they had today and finally give up on the idea they're pursuing because it's not getting anywhere. If they're anything like I was, they won't even realize that it's not the idea's fault that nothing happened. It's their own. Have you ever worked on a goal, putting in all kinds of hours and not made any tangible progress? My guess is it was because you didn't understand what to focus on. You thought what you needed was the time to pursue your dream, when really what you needed was to use the time you do have in an impactful way, to help you not fall into the trap of distraction disguised as productivity, 
Here's every single thing I can think of that I've taught myself over the last decade to be not just productive, but highly productive. One, replace your to-do list with a results list. Remember in the last chapter when I talked about creating your roadmap? I mean, of course you do. That was like five minutes ago. But on the off chance that you're like Drew Barrymore in 51st Dates and your memory is faulty, I'll remind you that your roadmap to your goal includes mile markers along the way. These are the stepping stones that you use to keep you focused in the direction you're headed. In order to work effectively, you need to always be working toward your next mile marker. The problem is, like those guys at the coffee shop or me in my early days of writing, It can often feel like you're working toward your next mile marker when really you're just making wider and wider circles around your current location. So to counteract this tendency, when you sit down to work from now until forever, I want you to stop making to-do lists. The average woman's to-do list is approximately 319 items long, which means you're never going to get through it anyway. Also, if you're anything like me back in the day, you'll spend your entire work time doing the easiest items on your to-do list simply so you can have some items crossed out. But since none of those items get you anywhere closer to your next mile marker, it's all a big waste of time. So let's let go of the idea of a to-do list and focus instead on creating a results list. And by result, I mean, what is the end result I'm looking for from this work session? A to-do list might have a line item that says, work on manuscript. But that's so nebulous. That could mean anything. And if you're already struggling to be productive, your brain will seize on any excuse to mark something as complete. So if I daydream about a title for this book, is that working on the manuscript? If I rewrite a paragraph four times, is that working on the manuscript? If I go to drinks with a fellow author and we discuss plot points, is that working on the manuscript? No. None of it counts as working on the manuscript when what I really need is to get closer to turning in this book on time. Right now, the only thing that matters is word count. Right now, I need to spend every waking minute building one sentence on top of another in order to turn this in on time. So, on my results list, I will list, write 2,500 words. That's the result I want. There's no way to sort of write 2,500 words. You either do it or you don't. And P.S., for all my fellow writers who dream of having a completed nonfiction manuscript, having a mile marker of write 2,500 words 26 times would get you there. Let's say you've decided to set and achieve a new target for your direct sales organization. Your to-do list could have hit new sales target on it, but that's so open-ended. I mean, how in the world is that any direction or focus for your brain? If I talk to three new prospective clients, does that count? If I spend an hour researching how to grow in a sales organization, is that good enough? Maybe if you're just trying to stay up to date in your industry, but if you want to get something you've never had, you've got to do things you've never done. Your results list should be specific. Reach out to 100 new prospective clients every day or close four new contracts every week. Or increase the average sale per existing customer by 3% to raise overall revenue numbers. Notice with that last one, it's very focused. I like results that are specific and about more than the goal, that are also about expanding on ways to achieve the same outcome. If the last time I tried to increase my business, I focused only on locking in new customers and it was difficult, I can step back and ask myself if there's a smarter way to achieve the same outcome. For instance, I could look at doing more with the clients I do have. Could I send out more emails? Can I create a process to make it easier to sell? Can I be more intentional about upselling to increase overall revenue without having to add a new client base? In this instance, my goal is actually increased revenue. 
but I've gotten so bogged down in my to-do list that I haven't stopped to consider it in a different light. If I don't write down the result that I'm looking for first, my brain can't help me ask the right questions to get me closer to my actual goal. So make a results list, not a to-do list. That daily results list should never be longer than five bullet points. In fact, my daily results list is typically only two or three points long at most. Because the items I'm writing down are major moves for me, when I'm able to knock out even one of them, I feel ecstatic. If you overwhelm your list, you're going to end every single working period feeling like you didn't accomplish much. When in reality, if you've completed at least one ideal result, that pushes you closer to the next mile marker you are wildly accomplished. That feeling of wild accomplishment needs to be your new habit. You need to make it a goal during every single working period. Not that you set aside time to work, but that you work to accomplish the right things. Two, reevaluate efficiency. Knowing the right result to aim for is honestly half the battle. If you started working toward completing one ideal result for every working period and you did it consistently for the next three weeks, I think you'd be shocked to see how much progress you made. But there's something you can do to push this a little further, a little faster. Frankly, I don't know anyone working their way toward a goal who wouldn't love to get there ahead of schedule. So once you've got a clear mile marker in your future and you know the best results to aim for to get closer to it, the next question you want to ask yourself is, is there something I could be doing that would make this more efficient? If you want to dive into this question in detail, I highly recommend the book, The One Thing by Gary Keller. In it, Keller asks a profound question. Not profound in its complexity, but profound in the sense that most of us are often so busy working inside our goals that we never take the time to work on our goals. The question is basically, what's the one thing you could do right now, today, that would make everything else unnecessary? When it comes to your results list, the question should be, what's the one thing I could do right now, today, that would help me achieve all of this faster, easier, more efficiently? For instance, let's go back to my ideal result of hitting 2,500 words. I ask myself how I could get to my daily word count more efficiently with less hassle quicker. The answer was pretty simple and incredibly easy to implement. But if I hadn't asked the question, I absolutely wouldn't have considered it. For me, it's about writing at a coffee house. What's so special about a coffee house? Well, I have a great office with a nice desk and a good chair and access to snacks and water and bathrooms at no additional charge. And I've been writing this books for weeks during my regular office hours. But you know what else is in that office? 14 employees who are working on various projects that I always get pulled into. Now, just so we're clear, they're not the ones pulling me into the projects. In fact, they don't bother me at all because they know I'm on deadline. But writing is a hard and lonely slog. No matter how many times I do it, it always sucks. And when I'm at work and feeling lonely or tired of writing a paragraph, I wander out to use the restroom, and along the way, I find three things to stick my nose into rather than heading back to work. So 2,500 words, which should never take me more than three hours, ends up taking the better part of a day. I was still achieving my end result, so I wasn't keen on challenging anything, but I had to ask myself, is there a better way to do this? For me, that means working away from my staff. I like coffee houses better than working from home because there's always great energy from fellow hustlers and creators, and sometimes I even get ideas for chapters, like the start of this one. Working on this book at a coffee house means that I'm plowing through this manuscript, doing way more than 2,500 words at a time, and getting there faster than I was. If you don't ask yourself, if you don't challenge what is and isn't working, then you'll never know. Three. Create your own productive environment. Years ago, someone I admired asked me if I could advise him on the writing process. 
This person was an extremely talented and sought-after speaker, but he had never written a book. I thought we'd get into word counts or plot points or how to craft an outline, but he really only wanted to know one thing. How do you create a writing retreat in your home to create the perfect atmosphere for writing? You don't, I told him. You write wherever, whenever, however you can. Creating the perfect office won't actually help you in any way. He didn't like my answer. He was adamant that if he could only set up the ideal space, then the process that had proven so hard in the past would become easier. I knew right then he'd never finish a manuscript. That sounds super harsh and catty, but it's the truth. This is based on my years of getting hundreds of questions just like this one. A writing room is dreamy and a luxury I hope to achieve one day, but it doesn't help you write. That's like thinking an expensive treadmill will motivate you to run. No outside factor is going to make you more productive. And if you need a certain atmosphere to be at your best, you're not truly in control of yourself. I'm writing this sentence right now in the center seat on a packed flight. A last-minute speaking gig across the country means all the fancy seats on the plane were booked. But even though it's uncomfortable, I can't miss out on valuable writing time. Early in the morning, late at night, while my kids play in front of me at the park or at soccer practice, I write whenever, however I can. Is one space, like that hipster coffee shop or a mansion overlooking the water, more preferable? Certainly. But life doesn't work like that. If I waited for the perfect space or opportunity to be productive, I wouldn't ever have completed even one of my books. The key is to create an environment that can get you into the zone wherever you happen to be. For me, it's different kinds of playlists or a certain song played on repeat over and over and over like white noise that helps me focus and get into production mode, even in the most hectic of places. For you, it could be a certain smell, a certain type of gum you chew. No, this is not crazy. The same exact coffee order at Starbucks. Any kind of repetitious cue you can give your brain that it's time to focus. My personal favorite zone maker is an espresso campana and the song Humble, as loud as my AirPods will allow. In fact, it may scandalize my conservative listeners to know that most of Girl, Wash Your Face was written to Kendrick Lamar on repeat. But hey, when you find out what helps you get into the zone, you capitalize on it as much as you can. Four, know what distracts you and avoid that thing. Man, this sounds obvious when you write it out. But people who struggle to be or stay productive are usually too distracted to know they're distracted. Every time your focus and your energy wander, it takes a long time to get them back, if you even get them back at all. Pay attention to what steals your attention. For me, it's usually access to Wi-Fi on my computer and the ability to see or hear the home screen of my phone. In my mind, every text is urgent and possibly an employee telling me that the office is burning down. Every incoming email might be from Oprah. And a quick Google search to research something I'm writing about turns into a vortex rabbit hole and suddenly I find myself taking a BuzzFeed quiz to see who my ideal Disney prince might be. So guess what has to happen when I'm trying to hit a certain word count? I have to shut off my Wi-Fi flip my phone over, and turn the sound off so I don't see or hear any incoming messages. Five, course correct. It's easy to get sidetracked, and it's even easier to be moving so quickly in a direction that you don't realize it's the wrong direction. I recommend a check-in with yourself every Sunday. Sunday is the easiest time for me because it's when I plan out my week. I take the time to focus in on the outcome I want for the week and then ask myself if I'm really, truly headed in the direction of the next mile marker. If so, great. If not, what can I do this week to ensure that I get the results I'm looking for? When it comes to efficiency, the bottom line is this. You're already doing the work. 
You're already putting in the time, and it would be such a waste if you were depleting your energy for no reason, or worse, potentially giving up on a great idea simply because you haven't figured out how to make greater strides toward your goal. Do an efficiency audit and figure out where you need to tighten up and shift your focus. Skill 5. Positivity. I once lived through 52 hours of labor. 50 freaking two hours. I will never let my firstborn forget about this as long as I live. In fact, even after I'm gone, I'm planning to arrange it so someone sends him an occasional reminder of this fact, like those men who pay a florist to deliver flowers every year on their wife's birthday even after they're dead. Anyway, it was the worst. It was so hard and exhausting and painful, and the nurses only let me have popsicles or jello or chicken broth during the labor. It took forever to get to the time to push. Anyone who has lived through a similar experience will vouch for me. You wait and wait and wait, and just when it seems like you'll probably just stay pregnant forever, they announce that it's time to push. Time to push. For me, the time to push came so much later than anticipated that the epidural had started to wear off. Yes, epidural. You didn't think I went through two days of labor without drugs, did you? No, I am not that heroic. I utilized the anesthesiologist who, just so we're clear, did look like Danny DeVito, as they should, and all the good drugs they wanted to offer me, but by go time, the pain was creeping back in. The nurses asked me if I wanted another dose, but I had read all kinds of horror stories about women who couldn't push because the meds were too strong, and I didn't want anything to slow us down further. So, like a true and proper martyr, I bravely told them I would push Jackson out without drugs. Almost immediately, I knew I had made a grave, grave mistake. The pain was bad enough just lying there, but when I actually tried to push for the first time, it felt like Satan had stuck a flaming pitchfork right up inside me and then given it a quarter turn to the right. JK, I told everyone in the room, I do in fact want those drugs just as fast as the IVs can carry them to my spinal column. The nurse pressed a button, the staff made some calls, They whispered amongst themselves, and then they looked at me with sad eyes. We're so sorry. Both of our anesthesiologists are in C-sections. There's no one available to administer another dose. What? No more drugs? No more numbing? Just me and Satan's pitchfork? My heart broke right along with my perineum. I was in so much pain and I was so exhausted that I felt kind of delusional. I had no control over what was happening to me and had no way to escape it. It felt like no matter how many times I pushed, Jackson wouldn't come out. His heart rate began to drop and the doctors started talking about there being too much stress on him and how maybe we'd have to do a C-section. Oddly, in the midst of utter panic, I had the greatest moment of clarity of my life. I knew I had to get Jackson out safely and calmly, and in order to do that, I had to find a way to rise above the pain. I went from crying and freaking out to silent and focused. I didn't speak to Dave or my mom or the nurses or the doctors. I don't think I made another sound or even looked in anyone's direction. I was deeply inside my head, caught somewhere between fervent prayer and an internal motivational speech to my unborn child. When Jackson Cage Hollis came screaming into the world an hour later, I don't know which of us was more exhausted. I do know that all the pain I'd been riding above came rushing back in a tidal wave so intense, I still can't believe I managed to ignore it for so long. It's one of the greatest reminders I have in my life that you can choose your attitude, your focus, and your intentions for any situation, no matter what it is. That choice is often the difference between joy and suffering. You can drink the water and wake up early and have a plan and work on it every day. But if you don't have the right attitude, you're dead in the water. 
All right, fine. Maybe dead in the water is a little dramatic, but I get pretty dramatic about mindset and attitude and reaching for positivity because it matters so dang much. When my children are acting insane and the house is trashed and I'm seriously contemplating running away with the circus or drinking an entire box of wine, forcing myself to have a positive attitude is what saves me. When my book is due, like right now, this book was due yesterday, and yet here I am, still writing it, and work is overwhelming, and my travel schedule is bananas, choosing to find the positive in every bit of it is how I stay happy. Happy, not just sane, not just okay, not just getting by, but happy. I am happy and appreciative and feeling blessed 90% of the time. And that's not because my life is unfolding in a way that makes that easy. I am one of the happiest gals you know because I choose it every single day. I choose to practice gratitude. I choose to surround myself with things and people who support positivity. I regulate my thoughts because thoughts control feelings. The words and phrases we use with ourselves become the soundtrack playing in the background of every moment of our lives. And there's not one single thought, good or bad, that you don't allow to be there. Are you actively monitoring that? Are you working to control the way you think about yourself and speak to yourself? Because you are not stupid, so stop telling yourself that you are. You are not ugly, so stop thinking it even occasionally when you look in the mirror. You are not a bitch, even if you've done bitchy things in the past. You are not ignorant or mean or unlovable or unworthy or falling short or any of the other stupid crap running through your mind. You have to choose to be positive, to see possibility and to see the blessings in your life each day. You choose your thoughts and there isn't one thing running through your mind that you don't allow to be there. So every time you find yourself thinking something negative, remember DMX. Stop yourself, drop the hateful litany, shut them down, then replace them with good stuff. The hope is that whether you are in a season of ease or a season of hardship, you'll recognize that you're still in control of how you perceive it. Because this is real life, not a fairy tale. And I don't for one second think it's going to be easy every day, no matter who you are or where you live. Real life is going to suck sometimes. And you'll have whole seasons that rob you of the energy you need to pursue your goal. But you still have hopes and dreams and goals for yourself in your life, and they are possible. Sometimes you're going to sprint at them headlong, and sometimes you're going to take the smallest inch forward, but you've got to keep yourself in the game. You cannot control the circumstances of your life. You can only control your reaction to them. Skill six, lead her ship. In sixth grade, I took a picture inside a teepee. It was Girl Scout camp circa 1995, and I still have the photo in an album covered with peace sign stickers and multiple artistic renderings of the Stussy S. In the photo, I'm dressed as a young Native American girl as imagined by a young and ignorant white girl. Brown tie-dye and knockoff Timberlands aren't a part of any tribal dress that I'm familiar with, but my 12-year-old self felt beyond cool to sit beneath that mock teepee for a solo picture donated by the local Olin Mills. Cultural appropriation aside, that particular Girl Scout experience sticks out in my mind for two reasons. One, because we made scrambled eggs by boiling them inside Ziploc bags. Since I have never been a camper, these sorts of wilderness skills still seem highly impressive. And two, my best friend Amanda and I made up an entire dance routine to a Tim McGraw song and taught it to the whole squad. The song was Indian Outlaw, I mean, obviously, and it involved choreographed steps and moving into more than one formation. The dance was originally something we did during a break as a way to fight boredom. But it was, I'm hypothesizing here, 
so adorable to the assembled group of troop leaders, who were likely all a little bit in love with Tim and that creepy pencil handlebar mustache he was rocking back then, that we were asked to perform it at Campfire. Campfire, you guys. Campfire is the Girl Scout equivalent of the big show. It's where everything goes down. It's where patches are given out and troops are recognized. It's where we join hands in one big circle and sing, make new friends, but keep the old. Anyone? Anyway, it's a big dang deal. And Troop 723 was about to make our campfire debut. When the big moment came, we all danced our hearts out. And during the grand finale, when the song cuts to the unexpected inclusion of Indian Reservation by Paul Revere and the Raiders, well, sisters, it was as if the spirit of Juliet Gordon Lowe herself was inside each of us. I was a leader even then, and likely so were most of you. As little girls, many of us were the ones who organized exactly how the Barbie accessories would be distributed fairly. We were the ones who instigated playdates or ran for drama club president. It wasn't a conscious thought, but the ability to gather groups and unite them around a theme or idea was just part of us. If you're lucky, your parents encouraged you in these natural leadership skills. If you're not as lucky, they may have unintentionally tried to snuff it out. Don't be bossy, they'd say. You're not in charge of everyone, they'd remind you. Never mind that when one of the boys displayed these same exact characteristics, it was seen as admirable. Look at that natural-born leader, they'd comment wistfully. Leadership isn't a trait that was encouraged in girls when I was growing up, and maybe that's why so many of us struggle with the mantle now. We don't tend to think of ourselves as leaders because that's most often reserved for business settings. I'm here to tell you I don't care who you are and what you do during the day. Working or momming or school or whatever, it's all the same to me in this area. I need you to embrace the idea that you are a leader. In fact, we all need you to do that. I've spent the last half decade of my life building up a community of women, both online and in person, who believe in a similar philosophy as I do. We welcome and support one another regardless of what we have in common and despite our differences. We give one another space to belong and the encouragement to pursue our dreams, and I'm so blessed that so many of you share my vision. I'm doubled over by how many women follow me online or come to my conference or buy my books. But here is the truth from the very bottom of my heart. I'm not looking for one more fan. I don't need one more woman to like my Instagram feed or think my shoes are cute. I'm not trying to develop a community of fans. I'm trying to develop a community of leaders. Are you an influencer? Are you in media? Do you run a conference, a business, a podcast? Are you a mom in the PTA? Are you a teller at the local bank? Are you a volunteer for Sunday school at church? Are you a high school student? Are you a grandma of seven? Great. I need you. We need you. We need you to live into your purpose. We need you to create and inspire and build and dream. We need you to blaze a trail and then turn around and light the way with your magic so other women can follow behind you. We need you to believe in the idea that every kind of woman deserves a chance to be who she was meant to be. And she may never realize it if you, yes you, don't speak that truth into her life. You'll be able to do that if you first practice the idea of being made for more in your own life. After all, if you don't see it, how do you know you can be it? If women in your community or your network marketing group or your Zumba class don't ever see an example of a confident woman, how will they find the courage to be confident? If our daughters don't see a daily practice of us feeling not only comfortable, but truly fulfilled by the choice to be utterly ourselves, how will they learn that behavior? Pursuing your goals for yourself is so important. 
and I'd argue that it's an essential factor in living a happy and fulfilled existence. But it's not enough simply to give you permission to make your dream manifest. I want to challenge you to love the pursuit and to openly celebrate who you become along the journey. When your light shines brighter, others won't be harmed by the glare. They'll be encouraged to become a more luminescent version of themselves. That's what leadership looks like. Leaders are encouraging. Leaders share information. Leaders hold up a light to show you the way. Leaders hold your hand when it gets hard. True leaders are just as excited for your success as they are for their own because they know that when one of us does well, all of us come up. When one of us succeeds, all of us succeed. You'll be able to lead other women to that place if you truly believe that every woman is worthy and called to something sacred. That requires opening your eyes and your heart to certain women you may not have noticed before. And though it may seem slightly off-topic for a book on personal growth, I want to ask you to consider who you're including in your sphere of leadership. I want to challenge you to do something. Look around you. Look at your Instagram feed. Look at the speaker lineup for your conference. Look at your staff. Look at your friends. Do they all look the same? And just so we're clear, I don't mean do they have different hair colors or personal styles. I mean, well, frankly, I mean, are they all the exact same color? Are they all the exact same type? Do they all go to the same church? Do they all live in the same area? I see this everywhere in female-focused media right now. I see it manifest on stages. I see it show up in the company's staff photo. I see it with the speaker lineup. I see it in advertising. And every single time I see it, I wonder, why isn't this homogeny upsetting to this group? Why doesn't this disparity bother them? How can they pull together 16 speakers, only one of which is female? Or, at a women's conference, how can you choose 10 female speakers to represent all women and nine of them are white? I don't think it's a conscious choice for most companies or conferences or friend circles to shun diversity. I just think that we tend to choose what we know, and what we know best are people who look and act and think like us. But friends, this is not what the world looks like. This is not what business or the market looks like. This is not what our community looks like. Representation matters. It matters that you sit in an audience and see yourself on stage. It matters that a company who sells to a multi-ethnic, multicultural world works to bring every voice in so that they consider as many perspectives as possible. Black, white, Latino, Asian, old, young, gay, straight, Christian, Jewish, Muslim, differently abled, plus size, petite, everybody should be at your table. Everybody should be on your stage. Everybody should be on your staff. Everybody should be invited to your kid's birthday party. Everybody should be welcome in your church. Everybody should be invited over for dinner. Every single woman you know and every single one you don't could benefit from the truth that she is capable of something great. How is she ever going to believe that if nobody sets an example? How is she ever going to believe that if nobody cares enough to see it in her and speak the truth aloud? The thing is, I believe there is magic in each and every one of you listening to this. I know this with every fiber of my being, that if you all begin to live more fully into that call on your heart, in spite of how scary and uncomfortable it feels at times, I know we could change the world. The incredible thing is, by embracing your calling and refusing to hide your glow, you wouldn't just make your world brighter. You'd light the way for the women who would come along behind you. Conclusion Believe in your dang self. I'm pretty stinking fired up at this point. 
I almost went full on bad language as I titled this last part, just so you know I was really and truly in beast mode on your behalf. But then I realized something. You have to already know that. If you don't realize that I'm so on fire for you and your dreams and what you're going to accomplish in life, then we must just not know each other well enough yet. I've devoted two books to the idea that you are in control of your life and capable of anything you set your heart and mind to. I've devoted my career and my company and therefore my life to creating content that reinforces that for you again and again. I believe in you. I believe in you so hard. I know that for many of you, there aren't supportive family members or friends who will encourage you along this journey toward your goals. So please know, first and foremost, there's an enthusiastic mom of four living somewhere on a ranch in Texas that cannot wait to see what you do next. Here's the second thing that you need to know and why I stopped myself from adding cuss words to the title. It doesn't matter if I believe in you. It doesn't matter if I'm fired up on your behalf. I can write a thousand books and post a million inspiring Instagram stories, and none of it matters if you don't believe in yourself. I'm not going to be there tomorrow to tell you to get out of bed. I'm not going to be there next week when your shift gets cut at work and you don't know how you're going to make rent. I'm not going to be there when your family makes fun of you for trying to lose weight. I'm not going to be there when you fall off the wagon. I'm not going to be there when the shit hits the fan. I'm not going to be there when you quit on yourself. I'm not going to be there when you have to fight your way back. I'm not going to be there in your life dealing with your stuff. You're going to be there every single day. So you better believe your life is worth fighting for. It's as simple and as hard as that. It means that you have to push through when you don't want to. It means that you have to find a way to not go binge eat. It means that you have to have a hard conversation with your sister about the way you're feeling. It means that you need to talk to your spouse about how you can have a stronger marriage. It means that you're going to have to do a lot of things that make you uncomfortable. It means that you're going to have to parent your kids instead of giving them what they want in order to keep the peace. It means that you're going to have to lead your team with the wisdom and determination of a great coach instead of the blind acceptance of a great cheerleader. It means that you're going to have to be your own coach as well as your own hype squad. It means that you're going to have to lead yourself well. It means that you're going to have to treat yourself with kindness, but challenge yourself to become better. There are a lot of things that you're going to have to do. None of them are easy, but all of them are simple. The easiest way, the fastest way to get where you want to go is to not quit on yourself. When you're standing at the start of a long race, it feels very overwhelming. The idea of making it all the way to the finish line without walking away this time feels challenging, but it's possible if you believe in yourself. You've heard that quote about doubt, right? Doubt will kill more dreams than failure ever will. But belief in yourself will give you the strength to get back up again and again. You've got to take it one single day at a time. If an entire day feels too overwhelming, I'm going to ask you to take it an hour at a time and keep reminding yourself, this is who I am. Remember how we visualize the very best version of yourself, your dream version of who you are? This is who you are on the inside. Your soul has always known who you are. That's why it keeps tugging at your heart, begging you to listen. That's where your what if is coming from. That's what makes you wonder about what else is possible. That's what makes you sad when you don't get there. Because you know, deep down in your belly, that a better version of you, 
a better version of this life is waiting on the other side of that what if. The real you is destined for something more, your version of more. This is who you were made to be, and the first step to making that vision a reality is to stop apologizing for having the dream in the first place. Like Lady Gaga says, Baby, you were born this way. It's not your job to make yourself fit into anyone else's ideal. It's your job to start believing in who you are and what you're capable of. It's time to be yourself unapologetically and to show the world what happens when a woman challenges herself for greatness. It's time to stop apologizing for who you are. It's time to become who you were made to be. In Behavior 5, I talk about one of my daily habits, the habit of a gratitude on meditation. Every single day, I devote time to looking for things to be grateful for. It has become so ingrained in my life that it's not hard to do. But if you've never done it, if you've never sat in gratitude, it can be a little confusing or your mind can begin to wander. So I thought it would be neat if I guided you through a meditation right now. I'm going to ask you to get comfortable, take some deep breaths. Close your eyes. If you are driving a car, don't close your eyes, (laughs) but assuming it's safe to do so. Allow the sound of my voice to lead you on a journey. Take a deep breath, and I want you to imagine a person. I want you to imagine a person that you are so grateful for. Maybe it's your husband, maybe it's your mom, Maybe it's your sister, but can you find a person in your memory that you can feel grateful for down to your soul? You can remember something very specific or a way that they showed up for you. I want you to put yourself back in that scenario now. I want you to see what they did for you. I want you to see it happening like a movie playing in your mind. Can you imagine right now this person and can you allow that feeling of appreciation and love? Imagine it as a, as a pink light. Imagine it um, in your heart center and that, that light is working its way down your arms and down your legs. That light, that love, that appreciation for this person, it's filling up your body. Can you sit in that gratitude? Does it bring a smile to your face? Remember what that moment felt like? What did it look like? What did it smell like? See it like a movie in your mind. And when you have that person in your mind that you can feel so grateful for, I want you to think of a place. Can you think of a place? Maybe it's your home. Maybe it's your childhood bedroom. Maybe it's your desk at work or your favorite vacation spot. Can you imagine a place that you've been that you can feel gratitude for, that that you felt so safe, you felt so comfortable, you felt so relaxed. Can you find a place that will make you feel the way you felt when you were in it last? Find the place in your mind, see it like you see a movie. Experience it. What do you hear? What do you smell? And once you have the place, I want you to imagine a thing. I want you to imagine an object that you love. Maybe it's your favorite hoodie. Maybe it's a scarf that your grandma made you. Maybe it's your wedding ring. But can you think of an object, your most sacred possession in your life, something that you love deeply, that every time you think of it, it makes you feel joy? Can you find the gratitude in this moment to be grateful for this thing that you have in your life. You get to experience the specialness of this object. Can you let that feeling of love and appreciation fill up your body? Now, I want to ask you to find something hard. 
I want to ask you to find something that you walked through or a person that you lost. I want you to find something hard that you can feel gratitude in. For me, it was the loss of our twins was always so hard for me to grapple with. It was so painful and every single time I would remember it, I would get so angry and so sad. And this daily meditation practice, I would remember the feeling of the twins laying on my chest. Right now, I can feel the weight of them on my chest and I can feel deeply grateful for this moment that I got to be their mom, even if it was fleeting. The, the, the good stuff, it's easy to find a smile about the good stuff, but to train yourself to look for gratitude in the hardship. That is true power. So I want you to think of a person that you've lost or a relationship that you don't have anymore. And I want you to dig past the pain to find the thing that you can feel joy for. Because even when we don't have something anymore, there was still a time in our life where it was so special to us. And if you only let pain and hardship and fear color that memory, it will rob you of all the good times. So see that person in your mind. See that thing in your mind. Allow it to fill up your heart. Allow it to fill up your body with a sense of gratitude and blessing and and joy for the time that you have, even if you don't have it anymore. You are so blessed. These are just a few ways that you can start your day, but you are so blessed. And if you spend your day looking for things to be grateful for, you'll find them. Acknowledgements. I always start my thank yous at the beginning. And for my writing career, that always resides with my agent, Kevin Lyon. It's nearly unbelievable how far I've come as an author, and that is due in large part to your insight and wisdom and the fact that you unabashedly dream crush me every time I pitch you an idea involving world building or magical realism. Someday, KL. Someday. Thank you to Brian Hampton and the team at Nelson Books and HarperCollins who took a chance on Girl Wash Your Face and worked so hard alongside us to make it successful. Jenny Boomgardner, Jessica Wong, Brigitte Norker, Stephanie Tresner, Sarah Brown, and every single member of the sales team who championed my work to our retail partners and continues to answer my emails even when they're annoying and likely overstepping. Thank you to Jeff James and the team at HarperCollins Leadership for believing that a book that focuses on goal setting and achievement was the perfect sequel to a book that talked about hairy toes and incontinence. As always, a big shout out to the team at The Hollis Company, who remain the hardest working group in this industry or any other. We are small but mighty. We are the little engine that could. Don't let anyone tell you that a small group of determined people can't change the world. They already have. Thank you, too, to my friend Annie Ludis, who illustrated the images in this book. A visual representation of my crazy ranting is no easy task, but Annie managed to knock it out of the park. At the risk of sounding cheeseball, I want to take a moment to acknowledge my mentors. None of them have any idea who I am, but their work has given me the tools to change my life and my business, and I am forever grateful for the guidance they have made available to dreamers like me. Dave Ramsey, Oprah Winfrey, John C. Maxwell, Keith J. Cunningham, Elizabeth Gilbert, Phil Knight, Her Royal Highness, Beyonce Knowles-Carter, Ed Milet, Brendan Burchard, and most especially, Tony Robbins, have all been instrumental to me. If I have affected your life as an author, it is because these teachers have greatly affected my life as a student. For my children, Jackson Cage, Sawyer Neely, Ford Baker, and Noah Elizabeth, 
I hope the dreams you chase light your hearts on fire. I pray that I live my life in a way that makes you believe anything is possible. And as always, I save the biggest and best thank you for last. Dave Hollis is my touchstone, my cheerleader, and in many ways, the caretaker I didn't have earlier in life. He's also now my business partner. In the midst of me writing this book, we took a massive leap of faith that didn't feel so massive to us. We moved our family and our company to Austin from Los Angeles. Dave quit a lucrative job at Disney after 17 years and walked away from a title and a salary other people would kill to achieve. He did all this because he believes in this vision as much as I do. We want to build a company that gives people the tools and inspiration to change their lives. It's a grandiose ideal and one heck of a missional calling. I couldn't do this work without you, my love. You've been listening to the audio production of Girl Stop Apologizing. Text copyright 2019 by Rachel Hollis. Production copyright 2019 by HarperCollins Leadership. No portion of this recording may be reproduced without the prior written consent of the publisher. For more information on other books and audio products from HarperCollins Leadership, please visit your favorite retailer or visit us online at harpercollinsleadership.com. Girl Stop Apologizing was recorded by Mark Eric at Digital Domain Studios in Austin, Texas.